Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, it's time to get your flu shot. I'll talk about why it's so important with Maureen Neiman, a scientist, vaccine advocate, and a mother who lost her two-year-old son to the flu. First, Mary Helen Stefaniak has been writing her life story bit by bit for decades. As a novelist and a professor, these essays haven't been her primary focus, but her short essays, stories of family and life experiences big and small, have accumulated. And now she's brought them together in the six-minute memoir, 55 Short Essays on Life. She'll be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City tonight at 7 p.m. and at The Bookworm in Omaha on October 27th. Thursday at 6.30 p.m. And she is with me now. Mary Helen, welcome. Oh, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And this collection of essays has a little bit of a public radio connection as well. So um, tell me a little bit about how you got started writing essays. Well, I was working on my first novel, and that's a difficult time for anyone, <laughs> and also teaching. And you had fairly young kids. Yeah, my kids were pretty young. They were still all at home and and at school. When um, Claudia Miller, uh, the editor of the Iowa Source, uh, asked me if I'd like to write a column for the Source. It's a monthly publication. And at first I thought, I can't write a column for the Source. And then I decided I would give it a try. And one reason I decided to give it a try is that I had notebooks full of jottings of things that that I had written down really as they happened or shortly, very shortly thereafter. And so I started mining those um, for uh, the original kind of nugget or image or conversation that then would become um, one of my columns. And so when you set out to write these columns, I mean, there are lots of different kinds of columnists. Um, what did you have a vision for the kinds of stories you'd be sharing? Well, um, Claudia and I talked about that a little bit. And one thing was that I could write about absolutely anything I wanted to write about, she said. And um, so sometimes I wrote about upcoming events um, or things like that that would have sort of a time stamp on them that wouldn't be of long-term interest. But most of the time, I mined my notebooks, as I said, and found things that um, I thought, well, this would be good. I'll write about this. Uh, and then they, the, the, the column would just grow from there. It had a, we had a, um, a, a title for the column overall or for the department, you know, and it was um, Alive and Well uh, in the Middle of the Middle West. And so that was that was kind of a theme that um, it would be how you could thrive (laughs) by looking at how I had to the extent that I had. I'm not sure what the past tense of thrive is. Thriven, thrived, (laughs) how I had thrived. (laughs) And. So the public radio connection here, because many of our longtime Eastern Iowa listeners recognize you, recognize your voice, you then started doing commentaries or recording these short essays for WSUI radio. Dennis Reese, our beloved Dennis Reese, invited you to be on the radio. What were your thoughts when that happened? Well, that was terribly exciting. Um, You know, you already had kind of an audience for the column, but to um, read them on the radio. And I really can't 
I don't remember whether he had ever heard me read something so that he thought, well, she's got a decent radio voice. Um, but uh, Or if he just read one of the essays and thought he'd give it a try. But anyway, um, he invited me, and I read several of them. I, I don't really, uh, I don't know how many. You know, was it a dozen? Was it more or less? I'm not sure. So when you started connecting with readers and listeners about these essays, I mean, this was something that you fit in at the margins. You thought it would be a great opportunity to flesh out some of the notes that you'd made. But what did you start hearing from people who were reading your essays? Well, it seemed as though people were enjoying them. Uh, I liked, you know, having someone recognize me at the grocery store as the writer, you know, to tell me, you know, I like the one about scuba diving, as I said. Um, And there really is one about scuba diving. Um, So uh, it was great. It was very affirming. You know, you're writing in the dark, kind of, you know, working on my first novel. I'd had a book of short stories published just before this and uh, before this beginning of the Mm -hmm. um, essays and the column. So uh, it was um, very, it was, it was great. It was, Claudia took whatever I had written. <laughs> and I mean, you know, sometimes there were copy edits, but, you know, whatever I wanted to write about and however I approached it was, was good with her. And it seemed to be pretty good with the readers. How, I mean, this lasted decades, right? Yeah, you know, uh, I think I wrote the first one. Um, it was about 24 years ago. Wow. <laughs> so what prompted you to pull these essays back out and start looking through them? Well, um, you know, in a way, it was the same thing. I was I was working on, um, I guess that would have been my fourth novel, The, the World of Pondside, that also came out this year, which is right? bizarre. Right? You had a big year. I know. I know. Wow. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it was also... COVID was going on, so you had a little more time, although I had time because I had retired from my full-time teaching job, although I have many other teaching jobs. Um, and so uh, I, my family had encouraged me to do it, too. Um, so it just I started kind of seeing how they went together. And then I was really kind of surprised when my agent, you know, who um, uh, is, you know, is, is far away from Iowa... <laughs> and uh, when she read it, and she liked it a lot, and so she said, um, let's see if we can sell this. <laughs> nice. Well, I would love for you to read just a little bit of one of the essays, because that will help people who haven't heard your essays, haven't read your essays, and haven't picked this book up yet, which would be hard to do, because it just came out. Today. <laughs> right? Today is the pub date. Yes. Um, know what what we're talking about here. So if you could read just a little bit of the beginning of an essay called Photo Opportunities. All right, I will do that. I'm the kind of person who routinely misses photo opportunities. When my son, my firstborn, graduated from high school, I didn't even manage to get a cap and gown shot with the family, including grandparents who had traveled some distance to be there. Before I knew what was what, Jeff had exchanged his gown for his diploma and everybody was looking for lunch. I grieved for a long time over the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity we had missed. When I went to Hungary with my father's cousin, Marie Sinyakovich, in 1994, I was determined not to make the same mistake. I took so many pictures of the ancestral village that she made fun of me for whipping out the camera every 30 seconds. I took pictures of houses, including the one where Cousin Marie was born, of grapevine 
uh, covered hillsides and of the 400-year-old village church. I took pictures of pigs and red brick barns and of a kind of well you could find in every yard, an ancient design with a bucket on a pole suspended from one end of a tree trunk that was balanced like a seesaw in the crook of another tree trunk. Here's where I wish I could say, see photo. So maybe I did take too many pictures of cows coming home down the village street, each one turning off into her yard like so many cars pulling into their driveways. Until the cows come home means something very specific to me now. And I certainly took more pictures than I needed of storks' nests on chimney tops and light poles. But I also took pictures worth more than a thousand words apiece. Marie and an old school friend with their arms around each other's waists. Marie, white-haired and apple-cheeked, her friend in babushka and apron. My father's cousin, Paul Bunyavach, beside his bicycle on the banks of the Drava River, the wide water behind him, and the identical leafy landscape of Croatia on the other side. And what about the cowherd who went door to door each morning, downing a shot glass of plum brandy in each customer's kitchen? For Christmas that year, I gave Marie a 12 by 14 of that cowherd, following his charges down the road, his whip in his hand, and his dog at his heels. She framed it and hung it in her living room. I missed no photo opportunities on that trip, believe me. And when I came home, I put all the keepers in a photo album. This was in the pre-digital days of negatives and prints, arranging them by place and time and adding a road map of Hungary with our little village and other spots circled in red. I toted that album around all summer, showing it to everybody. Until I lost it. I might have left it in a booth at a restaurant in Milwaukee. The negatives... I have them somewhere. That's just an excerpt from Photo Opportunities, one of the essays in the six-minute memoir by Mary Helen Stefaniak. And Mary Helen, uh, that I love that essay so much. And you go on to talk about a photo that was lost in that collection and how much you loved that photo, how sad you were to have lost it. And then when you are visiting again. (laughs) Another trip to the village. Right. Somebody pulls it out and says, this photo. What happened when you looked at that photo that you had thought about and remembered and missed and longed for? Well, yeah, that was the one photo in the album that meant the most to me. And I did, I mentioned it a bit already that it was my, um, it would be my father's first cousin, Paul Bunyavach, a man in his 70s, holding his uh, um, bicycle, and I beside him with another bicycle, um, about to take a, a ride along, on the path along the river. Uh, and I describe it in great detail, so the, you know, even though it's lost. Yeah. So th- this is how um, I remembered it. And uh, then when I got there and saw the photo, it was absolutely nothing like what I remembered it. I mean, we were in it and we had bicycles and that's about where the similarity uh, ended. (laughs) And then what did he say about that photo? Well, good old Paul Bunyavac, who does not speak or did not speak English. um, And my Croatian and Hungarian were pretty minimal. Um, He managed to convey to me uh, this thought that memory takes a better picture. Because he understood by the look on my face when I looked at the photo that this wasn't what I recognized it. I thought, this is it, but this isn't it. Uh, And he could tell. He's a very wise man. (laughs) Could tell by, by the way I looked at it and looked at him that well, I had remembered it differently. 
Well, we'll talk more about memory and, and what you've captured in these essays and what you also hope to inspire others to capture in the essays that you may inspire them to write as well. I'm talking to Mary Helen Stefaniak. She has just released The Six-Minute Memoir, 55 Short Essays on Life. She'll be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City tonight at 7 p.m. She'll also be reading at The Bookworm in Omaha on Thursday evening at 6.30. And coming up in just about a week, a right your own six-minute memoir workshop at the cafe at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City. That's coming up on Thursday, November 3rd from 5 to 7 p.m. And we'll talk more about that in a moment as well. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Vehicle donations are a powerful way to fuel the programming you love on IPR. If you've got a clunker or a classic that you've been considering parting ways with, visit IPR.org vehicle to learn more. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll have a conversation about the importance of getting vaccinated against the flu and why perhaps people are less inclined to do that after the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Right now, I am talking with Mary Helen Stefaniak. She has just released today her new memoir. It's called The Six-Minute Memoir, 55 Short Essays on Life. And that's exactly what it is, a collection of essays about family, life experiences, big experiences, small experiences. She'll be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City tonight at 7 o'clock and at The Bookworm in Omaha on October 27th at 6.30 p.m. And so, Mary Helen, I want to go back to that uh, essay we were just talking about before the break, Memory Takes a Better Picture. That is such an interesting idea because I think we've all had that experience where we remember something and we remember it so vividly, every detail And then we encounter evidence that shows us (laughs) that our memory is not 100% accurate. So in in sharing these stories about your life, there's another essay that you write about uh, getting your foot caught in the spokes (laughs) of a bicycle. But it turns out it was your sister (laughs) who got her foot caught. Or so she claims. Right. So how do you... Cope with that, the idea that you're telling these stories that you remember and you believe to be true, but we know that our memories are not perfect. No, they're they're not perfect if what we're talking about is um, accuracy to uh, a non-involved observer, like a video you know, a camera. Right. Or, uh, or news, which is, yes. <laughs> is my business. Yes, right, the news. Um, uh, that, uh, 
and I, you know, and that it is, I mean, a big and important um, uh, issue, uh, or you know, in a court of law. My goodness, right? Yeah. So when you say when I when Paul conveys to me, Paul Bunyavach, my cousin, who shows me what the picture I was remembering really looked like, um, and he says uh, memory takes a better picture. I'd say that's I agree that's true, but it, he's not saying that memory takes a more accurate picture, but a better picture. And on one hand, yeah, we do tend to um, kind of clean things up, right? We, we would like to remember them better than they were, although sometimes we remember things um, kind of worse than they were, right? More darkly than they were, or just plain inaccurate. The, um, uh, the essay you mentioned about my, my getting my foot caught in the bike and then being sort of treated like royalty mm-hmm. um, as I was carried back home and all of that. And then my sister re- read that essay. I mean, I'd written the essay. It was, it was you know, it was in the, in the source. And then my sister said, well, you know, that happened to me, not you. And we're four years apart in age. But, you know, I could just see little Mary Helen, you know, running along with all of this and somehow just taking possession of it mm-hmm. so that you aren't lying um, uh, and maybe she didn't even remember it at all until I wrote the story. Right. Uh, but um, uh, so the way I handle that is I just put a postscript or whatever, an, an author's note that said, my sister claims she remembered this. <laughs> and, it, you know, based on her, her the level of detail, I think uh, she's probably right. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I'm, I think all of us have probably had you know, experiences in our families where we remember something differently than a sibling or than one of our parents. And my family can get into some pretty heated debates about those. But what I hear you saying is that you're looking for the emotional truth of the memory. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. And when you're looking for the emotional truth, um, in that sense, memory does take a better picture because it... um, it holds on to what's significant about the event for you. And in a sense, it doesn't matter from the perspective of myself as a, a human being who went from being that little girl to um, the person I am now, that it happened to my sister because it was part of my, um, uh, uh, you know, part of the formation of who I am. Uh, and I mean, it's a little thing. It wasn't a huge part right. of the formation. And I and I never, I might not even have remembered it, except I was writing an essay about um, a bicycle that my husband gave me. You know, years later, and writing about riding our bicycles to the uh, on the last day along the river before the flood of two thousand eight made that impossible. And then that's when that you know came up as well. Uh, and that's really how a lot of the essays work. That I sort of start with a particular thing, an image or a, a moment. And then the other moments come, you know, they come flying in. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's a writing exercise for you, but you obviously get more out of it than a finished essay. What what does the act of writing an essay like this do for you? Well, um, you know, I think in it, it's it's an essay that's written in a certain way, but I think it is a, a finished essay. I mean, I don't want to do anything else with those materials, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think that um, the fact that I uh, can bring into it um, this afterthought of my sister claiming that it really happened to her. I mean, I could rewrite the whole thing in which we were going toward that point, but I don't think that would make it a better essay. I think that the process of remembering it as I did is an uh, important part of what the essay gives the reader. So, um, 
you know, I mean, I'm not bristling at saying it's in, not a finished essay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying it's a certain kind of essay. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's you know, um, very much under uh, discussion at all times. You know, what is an essay? Is this an essay? Is this a, a piece, an article, uh, a blog? You know, so. Right. Um, it's, but you uh, you share some prompts in the back of the yes. book, uh, giving people ideas for essays that they may be able to write about their own lives. And so I'm curious about why you think that that would be a valuable experience for someone who's not necessarily a writer, but to revisit something in their life and try to pull out the threads of that memory and really explore it in such a thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. Why do you want other people to do that? Well, you know, it's partly for the same reason that you, since we started with an essay about photographs, for the same reason that you take photos. Um, you know, you you don't want to forget everything. I mean, I mean that's like the number one uh, reason to do it uh, is to um, is to remember it and to remember it as as it was for you. I think is has is an added value. We tend to see that as um, a negative. You didn't remember it accurately, but that was why it was so great that um, my my dad's cousin in that village in Hungary said that memory takes a better picture because he didn't mean more accurate either. But it's one that um, conveys the significance of that memory for you. But it's partly just so you won't lose all of those things so that you'll remember them. And again, I mean, talking about emotional truth, that's something that you can share with other people in your yes, life. Yes, yes. Um, uh, uh, I write in the intro about teaching a course um, at the uh, senior center, in which, and that's what most people wanted to do. We were going to write these little pieces, um, like the ones in the book, um, and try to discover the what was the significance of this event. Obviously, there's for me. Why did I remember it? Why am I, you know, why do I know every detail about how my grandmother made those biscuits? You know? Right. Uh, so um, uh, it's uh, it has that added value of 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 um, discovering whether it's significant and then allowing you to share that significance with someone else. A lot of people in the senior center, they wanted to write things down so they could give them to their family. Usually they want to give them to to their grandchildren to show them how life used to be. Um, But, you know, it would end up being uh, not about how life used to be, but how my life was in this moment. Right. Right. And if you're going to give an essay to your grandchild, you should probably make it short. Yes, yeah, that's a plus right there. Engage with it. I'm talking to Mary Helen Stefaniak. She has just published the six minute memoir, 55 short essays on life. And Mary Helen, the the essays range through so many different kinds of topics. I mean, about the the pleasures of a late night swim at City Park Pool in Iowa City, ranging all the way to um, you had a, a very serious brain event. And, and you wrote three essays about that, a very serious health problem that... Um, that that could have been even more serious, and I'm I'm glad to see that you are doing so very well. And one of the things that I really loved about what you shared about that, I mean, I think uh, we can all relate to the vulnerability that you feel when something goes just terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. You also write about how you become somewhat fixated on the fact that you are supposed to be receiving a contract 
for your second novel, and you have not yet signed that contract. So here you are in an ICU, possibly facing death, and you are thinking about the fact that you cannot die before you sign that contract. Was that really? (laughs) That was absolutely true. I mean, you know, it's a reason to live. (laughs) You you have a few others to live reasons I did. to live too. I certainly did, but um, uh, yeah, that was absolutely true. And the, and the whole um, uh, integration of the novel with the the brain event and um, uh, realizing what they had in common, sort of, and you know, in the heroic roles that my uh, daughter Liz played in um, uh, responding to the copy edits as if she were me. <laughs> And the only reason I couldn't do it, I had all, I had full capacity, but if I just took it in my hands, my blood pressure went so high <laughs> that, that it seemed like it was adding to the um, medical situation. So so I said, put it in her hands, and she did a, a fabulous job. Of course, she had already read it in right. many forms. Yeah. Were you working with the same agent that you have now? Yes. So the same agent then read these essays. What did she say about those essays? Well, I had sent that to her a while okay. back. I had admitted this uh, some <laughs> years ago because it actually happened in, what, 2009. Right. And so, yeah, they, but they were very shocked to hear both the agent and both my agent, Valerie, and um, uh, my editor at Norton, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, who's really had a lot at stake there. Um, and I, I was just convinced. I talked to her on the phone in the ICU without ever saying, I sort of implied that I was visiting my mother. I never exactly said that. But um, I just, I thought, I don't want them to know. They're probably sorry that they took this book. And if I can't sign it, you know, I was, well, you know, I was a little delusional. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And the, uh, did she tell you, did she say, you know, you could have said, we need to wait a week? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was, she, you know, like anyone would be, she was stunned that I had, had been so single-minded. But, you know. I, I've so enjoyed reading this essay collection. And I was also thinking about, you know, the many different kinds of columns that people write and how often, especially with opinion po- columns, there's, there's this pressure to kind of have an epiphany on a regular basis to, you know, come to some great conclusion and reveal this great truth. And some of your essays do do that, but a lot of them do not. That was never your goal, was it? <laughs> uh, no, not to necessarily reveal, um, you know, a great truth, but just to get out what is sort of the significance, the truth of this moment. Um, for me, but you know, for the reader. And so they're not, they're not, it's not like a diary. Um, I mean, even my journal is not like a diary. It's just, I write down, you know, a, an interesting conversation. And then that becomes, I want to share that with somebody. Well, I have to put it in something so they can read it. And that's what I would do. Uh, and that's what I'm encouraging other people to do because everybody's got readers who want to um, know how, how it is with you. You decided to include the prompts at the end of the book. That wasn't the original plan, right? No, no. Um, and uh, um, I guess my daughter Liz gets some credit for that as well. Uh, she, and, and also um, there were some other people who thought the prompts would be a good idea. And certainly I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the concept, having, you know, taught writing at right. very many different <laughs> levels. You have prompted uh, many uh, writers yes, over yes, the years. Yes, uh, And then with, the, with for each prompt, like... Uh, there's, of course, one um, about a photo opportunity, right about a photo opportunity you had missed or a time when you had to sit very still. 
you know, uh, or um, when you were involved in a verbal misunderstanding, intentional or otherwise. And then for each one, I, I give the name of an essay in the book. So there are many other prompts. Each of these prompts has, is sort of arises from the essay, which is kind of backwards. You know, usually you would have the prompt and write the essay. Right. But I wanted to be able to provide a kind of, uh, um, just to be able to say, well, here's what I did with the same situation. Well, and what a just what a lovely opportunity you have taught so many writers over the years. But what a lovely opportunity to inspire just members of the public, people who pick up your book, to think about their own past in a different way. That must feel good to think about doing that. Yes, I think so. You know, you're not going to judge whether this was a good experience or a bad experience. You're just going to start out by really trying to get it on the page and look at it and see what other connections arise. And you learn things, you know, you learn things about what something meant You every time. And you've already uh, spoken with a writer or heard from a writer who was inspired by your prompt to write about a missed photo opportunity, yes, right? Yes, yes. I'm going to say her name. It's Joanne Losavio, and she teaches in uh, Washington State, at Washington State University, I believe. Um, and uh, she you know, wrote, read the book, read a, wrote a review, and included in the review her uh, response to the essay she wrote in response to the photo opportunity question. Oh, that's so yeah. lovely. It almost feels like she couldn't stop herself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it, and the, and the um, essay that she wrote, while it was a childhood experience of getting a camera and going to the big city in, in Malaysia, mm-hmm. um, which is where she's from, um, the, uh, and taking photos and then getting them all back and realizing that uh, actually her father pointed out to her that she had taken a lot of pictures of these buildings, but there were no pictures of the family who had been on the trip together. And at the time she thought, well, you know, uh, I took pictures of what I wanted to take pictures of, Dad. Right. But uh, it turns out, you know, it, it, now when she looks at that, she sees, well, that's that's history, isn't it? The the, the people on the street are left out <laughs> and we are the people on the street. Right. So um, those are the stories there, that get yeah, lost. And that, yes. And that's what happens. These big truth comes out of a, a little, you know, childhood incident. And I mentioned that you're going to be teaching a workshop, a write-your-own six-minute memoir workshop on November 3rd at Prairie Lights. Uh, was that always part of the plan, too, that you might know? No, no. <laughs> I thought, well, what the heck? You know, if you, you get the book and you read the essays, um, and of course you, you buy the book at Prairie Lights, it goes without saying. And in Omaha, you buy the book at the bookworm. You know, this absolutely <laughs> goes without saying. And um, there are ways of encouraging that. Uh, but in any case, then we'll do this two-hour workshop, and you won't, you won't end up with with a finished piece, um, but you will uh, you will get started on on one or even more than one. Nice, nice. Well, it's lovely to to use your experiences to inspire others. And are you already you're you're not doing a great job at being retired? Is my impression? That's um, true. Are you already at work on another project? You mean a writing project? Right. I know you're building a we're garage. Building a garage, right? yes. And um, I, I do post on Facebook about that garage. But uh, yeah, I am working on a, on another novel. All right. Well, I can't wait for it. I'll be patient, though. I you, promise. All right. <laughs> Mary Helen Stefaniak. Her new book is the Six Minute Memoir: Fifty Five Short Essays on Life. She'll be reading at Prairie Lights in Iowa City tonight at seven p.m. She'll be reading at the Bookworm in Omaha on Thursday evening, the twenty seventh, at six thirty p.m. And there'll be a follow up: Write Your Own Six Minute Memoir Workshop at Prairie Lights on November third. 
Coming up in just a moment, we'll talk about the flu vaccine and the importance of getting vaccinated. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. These days, there's an app for everything. Now there's an app for everything you love about Iowa Public Radio. Local newscasts and stories from the voices you trust, your favorite public radio shows and podcasts, plus the music to soundtrack your day. You can have it all in the IPR app. Find it in app stores or at IPR.org app. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's more than just the flu. How many times have you heard that message with regard to COVID-19? Maureen Neiman is worried that careless comparison of two serious viruses could lead people to underestimate the flu. Neiman is a professor of biology at the University of Iowa and a vaccine advocate, something she's become particularly passionate about since her beautiful, healthy son, J.J. Neiman Brown, died suddenly of the flu just a few days shy of his third birthday. That was back in early 2020. And Maureen, welcome back to Talk of Iowa. Thank you so much for having me. I want to ask you, um, because I think that JJ's story is so important for people to understand in the context of this conversation. Um, Before JJ died, you didn't even really know that he was sick. Even his his final day was active and healthy. Yeah, his final day started off completely normally. You know, he was up early as I think two-year-olds often are. We actually did a science experiment and he had a just normal morning, ate two breakfasts, I remember. Towards the afternoon, he started to seem like he was coming down with something, but nothing scary. Like he was in daycare. He got stuff all the time like all the daycare kids do. And we didn't think that much of it besides trying to, you know, figure out how we were going to deal with. Obviously, we couldn't take him to school tomorrow because he had a little bit of a fever, but there was just nothing there that was scary. Yeah. You learned after his death that he had H1N1 flu. What was your reaction when you learned that? In retrospect, I was, it was a mix of surprise and not surprised. He had been vaccinated against the flu. This was always important to me. I also knew that the flu vaccines, they're the best we can do, that they're, but they're imperfect. I think what really surprised me is this notion that a child who was healthy and not particularly sick could die suddenly from the flu. Yeah. I had not realized that this could happen without warning. And I, I there's nothing that you could have done that would have changed this situation. In learning that it was the flu, I mean that I feel like that explodes so many ideas of what we would think a death from the flu would be like, because I guess I've always thought someone would get so sick that you would realize that they needed assistance. But this just wasn't the case. That's exactly what we thought. We assumed that there would be some warning, there would be struggles with breathing, that you would be in the hospital. And so this completely shattered all those assumptions. And of course, very much terrified all of my friends with children who have been telling me since J.J. died that even when their 16-year-old gets a fever, they they are sleeping in this kid's room overnight. And I understand why they do that. And I also know myself that if we had done that, it wouldn't have changed anything because J.J. died 
completely silently in his sleep with no distress. Yeah. And you, since JJ's death, have become a passionate advocate for vaccines, in particular the flu vaccine. And, and as you said, that's something that was important to you before. Tell me how this experience has changed your feeling about vaccination. My feelings about vaccination have always been very strong and very clear, where I view it as incredibly important to protect yourself and in some ways, more importantly, protect our communities. What JJ's death taught me or has changed my outlook is that I want to make his life and his death as meaningful as possible. And by sharing his story, and it's not easy to share his story, but by sharing his story, I can help turn his life into something that can really make a positive difference. You co-wrote an op-ed that has been widely published. Um, you co-wrote it with another mother who also lost a son, and that's the title. Our sons died from the flu. It's time to take it seriously and get the vaccine. And one of the things that you make clear is that you feel like nothing is gained by pitting deadly infectious diseases against one another. And I, I already mentioned earlier that we've heard so many times, you know, that COVID-19 is more than just the flu. That was that was a, a, an important message that, that was being spread. When you hear a comparison like that, what troubles you about that? I don't understand what we're gaining. The flu kills people. It kills usually tens of thousands of plus people every year. So I don't understand what minimizing one disease that kills people does in terms of promoting public health interventions for another disease. So I think it actually just conveys harm. It feels disrespectful when you've been affected by the flu. And I think that we should spread more positive, inclusive public health messages that emphasize getting vaccinated for everything for which we have a vaccination. Right. And let's talk about the flu vaccine. Um, I mean, you are an evolutionary biologist, but you are also a very competent scientist and you understand uh, how vaccines work. The flu vaccine, as you said, it's not perfect. It's the best thing that we have. And, you know, we did spend a lot of time throughout this pandemic looking back at the terrible flu pandemic uh, of 1919 to 1920. And you know, the horrors of how that flu or that flu spread and and how it killed people and how it shut down society make me so grateful that we have access to a vaccine at all. I mean, let's talk about the flu vaccine and, and why it is so powerful. The flu vaccine is incredibly powerful because it literally is the only tool we have right now that we can protect ourselves with when it comes to the flu. I mean, beyond reasonable public health measures like hand washing, and we've since learned masks are quite powerful as well. It's the best we can do in a difficult situation. And actually, the problem with the flu is really comes down to evolution. The flu virus evolves incredibly quickly and in ways that are very difficult to counter effectively with vaccines. Thankfully, COVID doesn't quite seem to be uh, as difficult as the flu viruses to deal with from this perspective. Yeah. And I remember, I, I will tell you that I I had not taken flu vaccination seriously before I was pregnant for the first time and then realized that I could get, you know, vaccinated and should get vaccinated. And ever since then, I've been vaccinated every year. But I also remember standing in line for hours uh, with my small children to be able to get them vaccinated when there was a resurgence of the H1N1 virus. And 
Then I remember being shocked a couple years later when I went to get a flu vaccine at a clinic, you know, at, a, at a, an opportunity to get vaccinated. Then, then there were no lines at all. So it seems to be something that we only tend to take seriously when the threat is even greater than usual. That is kind of the problem in that when vaccines are really effective, we we don't think we need them anymore, which leads to the resurgence of incredibly dangerous diseases like measles and polio that's happening in the United States literally right now. People look around them, they don't see children and adults debilitated or dying from a disease, so they don't think they need that vaccination. Right. And I, I am... To broaden the conversation about vaccinations, there has been, uh, you know, the politicization of the COVID-19 vaccine seems to have spread this distrust or hesitancy. We know that there was vaccine hesitancy before the COVID-19 pandemic, but does it feel to you as if that is a more powerful force now? It does. It seems like it got very much tied up in the political divisions that have, of course, existed as long as our country ha has existed. But it was very much exacerbated by the rhetoric and the tone and by some of the the pretty despicable things that have happened, I think, since 2016. And I really, really hope that we can make some distinct improvements going forward because we will save lives with responsible rhetoric and communication surrounding vaccination. And you mentioned some of the other diseases that we regularly vaccinate against and, and seeing a resurgence of the measles, seeing the possible resurgence of polio with the identification of polio cases in New York just in this past year. What is your reaction when you see something like that? It's sad because it doesn't have to happen this way. And so often these disinformation campaigns end up hitting the people who can least afford them. They're often going to be targeted towards people who are in communities that don't have the same kind of access to reliable public health information. They might not be able to readily get to a clinic. And so as so often happens in our country, when these bad things happen, and in this case, bad things that are often deliberately perpetuated by a group of people who have some power, they're going to really hit the people who can least afford it. It's interesting also with our conversations, you know, historical focus during the pandemic, looking back at that flu pandemic, it feels like that's something that would make us take the flu more seriously to look back at what happened in this country. But also there have been conversations about the, the polio uh, pandemic, which, of course, so many people with living memories of that time remember or even experienced polio or lost a loved one or had someone who was disabled for life because they experienced polio. It, it does seem it's so difficult to understand how short our memory seems to be for the kind of fear that people lived in during that time. It is perplexing. I think maybe this is unfair, but I do blame social media. Um, I see it myself in my own social media feeds. I mean, we see what we want to see, and we live in these echo chambers, and it can be very difficult to sort out good information from, from bad. And I'm a person who's in a privileged position, able to be educated. I can sift out the misinformation, but I know it can often be disguised in a very subtle way. And so I think that we've got our jobs cut out for us when it comes to promoting 
responsible and correct information regarding the importance and safety of vaccination. And I mentioned the op-ed that you published uh, this year, and that has been widely published. It's been in many different newspapers. This is not the the first outreach effort you have done to try to spread the word about uh, getting vaccinated against the flu. I'm curious, have you been on the receiving end of attacks because of this? Have have people taken offense to your advocation of vaccinations? Surprisingly, very little. Um, there was an incident not long after JJ died when I partnered with the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics to do some social media posts about what happened to him as a mechanism of encouraging community vaccination to protect the vulnerable. And there was an anti-vax mobilization that happened in response. But the scientific community pushed back in a way that was really effective. And I haven't had that happen since. And I I welcome, I I think I can handle it, but I don't mind not having to deal with it either. Oh, that's heartening to hear. Have you gotten much response from this op-ed? Positive. I've I've heard from many people that it's powerful and effective and that they really appreciate my willingness and that of my co-author, also another flu loss mother, uh, Cerise Murata with Vaccinate Your Family, that they really appreciate our willingness to be vulnerable and to share what's obviously a very difficult thing to talk about. So right now, of course, there is a a public health push to get boosted for the COVID-19 Omicron variant, get the bivalent booster, which is available now, and and then also to get your flu shot (laughs) often at the same time. It's it's so interesting to think about. You mentioned that in some ways COVID-19 is easier to deal with with vaccines because um, the flu is so difficult to pin down. And it's so amazing to have this moment in time where I was able to just go and get a, a booster for this variant that is traveling around our communities right now. So it's an exciting exciting time in vaccine technology. I also got my my flu booster at the same time uh, I did that. But it's a it's it's interesting to be at this moment where there are so many more effective vaccines available. And and as a parent, to think about the things that I can get my children vaccinated for vaccines that weren't available when I was a child, like meningitis. It's phenomenal, and we should take advantage of it. I think a really great example is the the vaccination that's now available that protects uh, girls and women, but also any partners that they have against diseases that can be transmitted by the virus that causes um, the, I just blanked on the name. HPV. Thank you, the HPV vaccine, which has been the both saved, I think, at this point, probably tens of thousands of, of people from cervical cancer and has also been the subject of absolutely vicious anti-vaccine campaigns. And I, it makes my head spin. Like, yeah. Why not protect yourself and protect other people? It, it feels like an enormous opportunity to protect our children from things and, of course, to protect ourselves in, in some cases as well. So it is the season to get vaccinated for the flu. What would you say to someone who maybe has talked themselves out of it a few times because it can be inconvenient and maybe you'll feel a little bit yucky afterward. (laughs) I would encourage them to think not just about themselves, but to think about the people around them that they're protecting, whether it be infants, young children, the elderly, somebody with asthma. I think that I hope a lot of people can push past the, the fears and the 
the trepidation they might have for themselves regarding needles or side effects just to think about, well, maybe I can save someone else's life if I don't give them the flu because I don't get the flu myself. Right. And as we said earlier, there was nothing that you could have done to change what happened to your son, JJ. But if people are vaccinated in a community, that's the thing that can change, right? It is. He had to get the flu from somebody. And currently our current our community vaccination levels for the flu are in the 40, 50, 60 percent range, which is well below the 80 to 90 percent range we actually need to, to protect the vulnerable, especially in the setting of a vaccine that's the best that we've got, but still can't fully prevent people from getting infected or getting sick. Have those levels fallen in recent years or is it a pretty steady? I be- excuse me. I believe that they have gone down a little bit in the last year or two, I think it's a complex combination of people getting tired of public health messaging. Maybe they don't want to go out to a clinic. I mean, at least a year ago, we were very nervous about getting COVID. I think that has decreased to some extent. But I think people just have some weariness with getting injected, getting vaccinated. And unfortunately, though, the diseases don't take a break. Right. And of course, our our protecting ourselves from COVID have meant that the last two flu seasons have been relatively minor. I know a lot of scientists, a lot of physicians are very worried that this year could be very different because so few people are taking precautions and they're concerned about a twindemic this year with both COVID and the flu. So this this feels like a very important year to get vaccinated. It does. And we're already seeing signs that influenza might be quite bad this year. And a lot of you have probably also heard about the resurgence of respiratory syncytial virus or RS which has already been flooding hospitals in the South with young children who are often struggling to breathe, and some of them, their lives will be at risk. Um, We don't have a vaccination for that disease, but we have vaccinations for other ones, and we can also wear masks and wash our hands and and just take care of the people around us. Maureen Neiman, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Maureen Neiman, she is a professor of biology at the University of Iowa. She is also a vaccine advocate, and she is a mom who lost her two-year-old son to the flu. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.